learning from your own mistakes is always good, but learning from other people's mistakes is always better. And on today's podcast, we are joined by a specialist healthcare lawyer that helps all doctors, but mostly GPs, avoid expensive legal mistakes. So we talk about the most common issues with partnership agreements and what you need to make sure you have in yours to protect both yourself and your colleagues. We talk about the complex topic of leases, merging practices, and finally, we cover the legal issues with PCNs. And avoiding expensive legal mistakes is just one of the many topics that we cover on our new to GP partnership course. And the next cohort of the course is starting on June the 22nd. And if you want to come and join us and learn about everything that a GP partner needs to know to run a happy, successful and thriving GP practice, including how to avoid expensive legal mistakes, check out the link in the show notes below or head to medicsmoney.co.uk forward slash GP course. The Medics Money podcast helps doctors, dentists and other professionals make better financial decisions. Hosted by myself, Dr. Tommy Perkins, a GP. And by me, Dr. Ed Cantelow, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and chartered tax advisor. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute any form of advice and tax allowances and rates are subject to change. So on today's podcast, it's my pleasure to introduce Rob Day, who is a specialist healthcare lawyer from Mills and Reeve. Hi, Rob. Yeah, hi, Tommy. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. So do you want to give yourself the intro? Yeah, so as you mentioned, so I'm a lawyer at Mills and Reeves Solicitors. I've been a lawyer probably now for, what, 15, maybe a bit more years. I started off as a corporate lawyer before joining the BMA or probably about 2014. And from that, obviously specialised in healthcare law, where I was then poached by Mills and Reeves to come and join them to head up their primary care team which I've done ever since. Yeah. And so is there any kind of formal qualification to become a healthcare specialist lawyer or do you just get the experience? Obviously, you've had loads of experience at the BMA, et cetera. How does it work? Yeah. So, you know, I won't bore everyone with the standard things which you need to do to go through to become a lawyer, but you have to go through the usual meal of training, education, a year going to training contracts. But once that's happened, you effectively then specialize in areas you want to deal with. That doesn't necessarily mean that a lot of people suddenly just fall straight into healthcare. It's quite a specialist area, a unique specialist area. So what tends to happen is people deal with more general areas of law first. And then they have an interest and then specialize from there. So, you know, that's generally how it plays out. Yeah. Okay. And so, in your average week, what kind of work do you do? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think it, it, well, our work reflects what you guys generally see is going on both on a sort of macro scale in the sense of what's going on in the profession generally, but also what you'll see in more locally as well. So it sort of reflects what you're seeing. Generally speaking, it can range. So in an average week, I could be dealing with practice mergers, regulatory inquiries. So for instance, if there's a dispute over the provision of services under, you know, your core clinical contracts. So there's issues with your commissioner. I could be dealing with anything to do with premises. In essence, anything that you see or or handle as part of your business, which has a legal element to it, then we'd be involved in. 
Cool. And so is this a good point to make clear that you don't do the kind of work which doctors probably fear lawyers do, which is clinical negligence? No, no. I mean, the reality is even those that did do it at the time. So I'm a commercial health lawyer. So I deal with commercial and corporate work. Those that do deal with clinical negligence, you know, they've probably seen their work sort of be streamlined as a result of an NHS resolution picking up the indemnity scheme. But yeah, that's certainly not my bag. It's certainly not something I can involved in. Thought we should just clarify that. I feel a bit more relaxed now talking to you. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So as you mentioned, Rob, you've been working in healthcare for 20 years or more. What are some of the biggest changes that you've seen in that time? Yeah, I think the most fundamental change has been this drive towards integration, getting people to work together. So what we tend to find is as a result of that, we're doing a lot of work, obviously, with primary care networks. Obviously, that's one of the central mechanisms in which integration was driven. But also we've seen a number of practice mergers, practice enlargements. And probably that's for a variety of reasons. You know, there's there's loads of pressures we all know about in terms of the profession itself. So being that in terms of workforce, a workload, whatever it may be. And one of the ways in which this is seen to be capable of being addressed is effectively growing, growing at being at scale provider. And I think, you know, I, I read a statistic where the number of GP practices is reduced by 15% over a period of around eight to nine years, but their list size is increased by 28%. So I think that's quite an interesting statistic on the basis of what we're seeing is actually the number of providers is reducing down, but their size is increasing. You know, it's quite a good litmus test, the list size to get a feel for the size of the practices involved. Yeah. And so all of those mergers and the, you mentioned PCN all have legal challenges, which we're going to talk about in a bit. I mean, crystal ball time and benefit of 20 years of being in the game. What do you think is the direction of travel for general practice? Yeah, I crystal ball gazing, and I suppose it's not so much crystal ball gazing, you know, there's a lot that's been said about it at the moment. I do think we're going to see a continued amalgamation of providers going forward. But as part of that, I think we're going to see a much more multidisciplinary look to general practice, both at ownership level, but also when it comes to the actual provision of services as well. Yeah, I think that's already happening. And as you say, it's kind of mapped out in the plans going forward. So interesting times. Okay, so obviously, you've been doing this 20 years, you've probably seen quite a few expensive legal mistakes. And sometimes, you know, it's great to learn from your mistakes, but it's even better to learn from other people's mistakes before you've made them. So Let's talk about, you know, recurring mistakes that you see that we can hopefully help our listeners to avoid and learn from other people's mistakes. So one area that we see, you know, on our Medics Money Partnership course quite a lot, and you talked about it a lot on the course was partnership agreements. Should we just cover the sort of mistakes that you see there so that people can... Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's absolute number one point. I mean, it's a litigator's dream. And when you see problems with a partnership, and there is not a robust partnership agreement in place, we say a robust partnership agreement, what we're effectively talking about there is one where the terms are on, you know, a variety of factors, be that expulsion, retirement, duties, obligations, but also we're also talking about the fact that, you know, has everybody that's a, a partner within the partnership signed up to to the agreement itself and probably one of the you know the recurring themes 
and it's understandable in many ways because everybody's busy you know it sort of falls down the list of priorities but when there's changes in the constitution of a partnership so when partners come or go it's not uncommon to see that the updating of a partnership gets pushed to one side it's dealt with at a later date and that can cause issues Um, and the issues it creates is there's then a big question mark as to whether it's applicable or whether they operate as something called a partnership at will yeah and we talked about that extensively during our course and that was pretty surprising really what about we briefly mentioned it like expulsion and what's a green socks clause Yeah, so expulsion, you know, as the name suggests, is your ability to remove an individual from the partnership. Now, generally speaking, when you're talking about expulsion, you're talking about expulsion on either fault grounds. So, you know, common one is if they're struck off by the GMC or they've done something that they shouldn't then there's usually provisions within the partnership agreement allowing the other partners to take a decision to to expel them. The other type of expulsion is is what you refer to there is a green source clause. And in essence, as the name suggests, you know, you can get rid of somebody for non-fault grounds. So the name is even for wearing green socks they could be expelled from a partnership so that's where the name comes from but the reality is it's usually used if there's a breakdown in relationship between one individual partner and the remaining partners and that's introduced because without uh, there being a fault issue at play if there is a breakdown in relationship there's very little that can be done to remove them from the partnership itself So that's the distinction between the two. But I think, you know, what we sometimes see, which can create a bit of a problem is, you know, these green socks clause can't be introduced and applied unilaterally. There needs to be some form of process that needs to be followed to allow the outgoing partner to have at least their say, you know, air their side of the story before decision is taken. Yeah. Anything else we should cover with the partnership agreement that people should know about? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's huge amounts. The other common situation which causes problems or headaches is usually around retirement and then just one of the key provisions within any partnership agreement. And the reality is, is what we're looking at as lawyers is to suggest creating stability within the practice. So, you know, if a partner leaves, how much notice do they need to give? How many people can retire in any one accounting period? Those sorts of things all need to be sort of thought through and covered off if necessary. And as I said, the reality is it's not just to be, you know, a picky lawyer. It's there to create stability within the practice itself. What we don't want is a mass exodus of partners all in one go. Yeah, definitely. It's there to protect everyone, the individuals, the practice, everyone. And the, the session that you did on the course was really insightful there. Going on to another topic, which I think lots of people learned loads of when you covered it on the course in detail, was leases. I mean, that is a complex area. What common mistakes do you see around leases from a legal point of view? That's another good one. I always step back and say, you know, what are usually the biggest liabilities that any GP practice will see? And they'll fall into two categories. One will be staff and the other will be premises. So when we're talking around premises, they're either going to be held and owned by the partners. So, you know, you've got a freehold property you own and you just use it for delivering services 
or it's leased from a third party. If it is leased from a third party, then I think the core thing is to bear in mind is this is a separate contract to your core clinical contract. So, you know, if your core clinical contract were to come to an end for whatever reason, say you handed back your keys to the practice for whatever reason you decide, there's no automatic right or provision, which means that the lease would come to an end. So that creates an issue. And the issue is clearly because you get rent reimbursement whilst you hold your clinical contract. As soon as your clinical contract comes to an end, that stops. So you need to have the right to bring the lease to an end as well. So that's probably the first point, you know, make sure you're just aware of this concept that it's a separate contract to your clinical contract and try and tie them together so that if your clinical contract comes to an end, then you've got the ability to break. Beyond that, I think the other key thing is to be aware of or obviously what your repairing obligations are and what your obligations are in terms of sums that you have to pay. So be that service charges and service charges is a key one for a lot of practices And the reason for that is because service charges aren't reimbursed under the cost directions. So, you know, these will be costs that come straight out of your pocket. So it's an important one to sort of pour over and consider whether they're reasonable and affordable. And I think probably the last thing I'll sort of say, and it's more of a practical point, you know, there's loads of stuff you could say around all leases, but probably from a practical point It's worth stressing that if you are entering into a lease, it has to be rubber stamped by your commissioner before it's entered into. And that's only because they rubber stamp it to ensure that rent is reimbursed. So unless you get that rubber stamp in, there's no guarantee they'll reimburse the rent. And the final point is really one to do with entering into any new lease. And it's one that always comes up and that's stamp duty land tax. If you enter into a new lease, you will be obligated to pay stamp duty land tax on completion. And the amount you have to pay will depend on two variables. That is the length of the lease you have in place and the rent which is payable plus any VAT. So the higher those variables and the higher the stamp duty land tax will be. And in almost all instances, that's non-reimbursed. Yep. And when you did your session on the course, we went in pretty deep there on the details. And I think a few people unfortunately got a bit of a surprise, but forewarned is forearmed. And thanks for flagging that up. Mentioning the course, immediately after this podcast, we are jumping into a bonus session on the course. And the community of 150 GPs on our course, we asked them what they wanted to cover that we hadn't already covered when you did your session. And the answer was mergers and i think you already mentioned this in the intro that practices are merging because list sizes are going up and number of practices are going down so people must be merging i guess so we're going to go into a lot of detail on the course but give us a high level overview for those not on the course what to think about if you're thinking about merging asking for a friend here (laughs) yeah fair enough i think the first thing i'd say is timing is a key thing to bear in mind don't think that you can do this within a week and i say that because we have had situations where we get called up on the say 23rd of march and asked to deal with a merger by the 1st of april you know it's nigh on impossible to do you know and if you do do it it's not going to be particularly well thought out on all levels for me it's not necessarily the legal points which need to be really thought through i think it's more to do with 
how you envisage the merge practice to operate going forward. And that's not necessarily a legal point, it's how you agree that you're going to work with the other practice or practices that you're merging with. So things, you know, the softer things such as ethos, delegated responsibility, who's responsible for what, how do we pull everybody together, what's our direction of travel. For me, I think that's probably more important than the legalities of pulling you all together. You know, in many respects, that can be dealt with in a quite straightforward manner. You know, you would have in place an agreement to merge. So at the point of time in merger, and then if you're a partnership, you would also then have a partnership agreement which governs the merge practice post-completion. But as I said, you know, those legals can be covered off. The things which take a lot of thought and will really drive the success of the practice will be those softer things, the ethos, decision-making, who's responsible for what. Brilliant. Yeah, I look forward to going into the detail on that in about 20 minutes' time. Another thing that we're going into a lot of detail on the course is PCNs, because there's a whole host of issues with PCNs, not just legal. But what are you going to talk to our course about when you talk about the legal issues with PCNs? Yeah, so I think, you know, headline point with all of this is not to lose sight of the fact of what PCNs are. And PCNs are just a name for a contractual joint venture between GP practices. They're not there, you know, it's not a separate corporate vehicle or anything like that. And as with any contractual JV, you should have terms which are clear on which you know, the parties work with one another. And the clarity of terms comes from the network agreement. So that's where the network agreement is irrelevant. Now, generally what we're seeing now, and it's happened as times marched on, and also because I think now PCNs are sort of out of the hell of having to deal with COVID vaccination programs and the stress of dealing with it. So I think certainly from the turn of the year, there's been more of a focus on direction of travel long term. And as part of that, they're sort of recognising that they're employing far more staff than they originally anticipated or thought that they were. And they're more concerned around liabilities and issues such as that uh, and also the possibility of taking on further opportunities in the new sort of world that we're entering into with ICBs. So what we tend to find at the moment is our work is split from a legal perspective in two. So we're either helping PCNs deal with their network agreements, so updating it to reflect how things have developed, or helping them when it comes to incorporating. So in essence, creating a separate provider arm which they operate through. Yeah, and that's what we're going to be talking about in detail on the course. Brilliant. That was a really great high-level summary of some of the issues, and hopefully that's been helpful to some of our listeners. So what opportunities do you think exist for general practice going forward? The opportunities really fall into two categories. So the first is making the most of fixed amounts that you receive per year. So the global sum is the obvious one. And driving through efficiencies when it comes to delivering services. So, you know, the sort of explosion and the growth of digital health within primary care is going to be a, and will play a big part in that. You know, the hope is and the anticipation is that you'll be able to do a lot more remotely and hopefully far more efficiently than uh, has historically been the case. But also, you know, driving through efficiencies through at scale working in one way, shape or form, you know, be that at your PCN level or whatever, um, again, will just make the most of these fixed amounts you receive per year. And the second category, it really falls into the grouping of practices looking at other opportunities which exist. So, 
you know, being involved in other businesses or starting up other businesses, which link into their core business. So, you know, a lot of common examples that we see are these ancillary businesses that look to deal with digital health, that look to deal with training, learning and development. Those sorts of things have proven to be quite successful for a number of practices. And they're sort of just on the outskirts of their core business. Yeah, I think it's a really tough time to be a GP at the moment, but in a way, a crisis has sort of forced through a lot of innovations. And yeah, I think absolutely, I'd agree with almost everything there. And, you know, technology has advanced so much as well. The start of the pandemic, I don't think I'd ever done a video consultation. We used to use a block text messaging service. And now, of course, we have video consultations when we need them. And I can text individual patients. And in fact, I can text them automatically and allow them to book themselves into, for example, a flu clinic simply by sending a text or email. And that is all work that used to be done manually. So yeah. That was really, really useful, high-level overview and summary. And we've got to get to the course now because I had a few technical problems this morning. We need to get over to the course session. But if people are liking what they're hearing, what is the best way to get a hold of you, Rob? Yeah, so obviously you can go over to Mills and Reeve website and look for me and my contact details will be on there. So you can email or give me a call. And if there's any issues you want to further discuss or any opportunities, then give me a call. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. And I'll see you in about five minutes for the course session.